please stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. 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 Good to be with you. Jonathan Dunn here with Rick Bonfin Ministries, streaming live. And we are going through the Gospel of John, and we've been trying to, here among the staff, we've been trying to look at it from the perspective of how, how was Jesus operating as someone who was under the prophetic of the Old Testament prophets and what 
what the Spirit said through the Old Testament prophets, Jesus would fulfill, and how is Jesus operating underneath that uh, that covering of the prophets? And so we're in uh, John 3.16. You know, perhaps the most well-known verse in the entire world. People who, you know, honestly, people who hate Christians can quote that verse. And, you know, um, so, but as I as I prayed and I looked, there is a lot that comes out of uh, the prophetic with John three sixteen, and looking at how the apostle John is giving commentary about what the purpose of Jesus here is. He's alluding to all kinds of things that are are under uh, the prophetic. Uh, from the Old Testament. So let's take just read the verse, and then we'll... Uh, and you guys help me out. Turn your brains on, those of you who aren't awake yet. <laughs> and uh, and y'all help me out. Um, and then after we look at 316, uh, we'll try to go a little more. It says here, John, the Apostle John says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So as I looked at this, and if you divide the verse out, uh, you say, then it's sort of like the motivation is the first part, right? For, for God, God so loved the world. So the motivation of God's actions here is love. Okay? That's the motivation. That's the heart of God, which... Uh, which really destroys this idea that God's an angry God who's looking to just, you know, rain fire and brimstone on people. Now, God hates sin, as we should too, but God's motivation is, is love for the world, all the world, that He gave His only begotten Son. So then we have the verb there, okay? So the verb is loved and then gave, all right, the two verbs. So let's look at Isaiah 9.6, kind of looking at uh, the prophetic idea. Isaiah 9.6, and this is, uh, and then, but our main passage will be out of, uh, out of Genesis in a second here. But this is another one that speaks of how Jesus was given to the world, okay, um, as a gift. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So it was prophesied by Isaiah that Jesus' a son would be given, not taken, you know, but freely given out of the heart of the Father. So, so that was that's one of the prophecies there that speaks of Jesus. And then it talks about His only begotten Son. And if we are going to look at that, the only begotten Son, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 22 when we think of Abraham and Isaac. And there is a powerful prophecy that Abraham speaks um, during this story where God asks him to take Isaac up and to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And so we're going to read the story, and then and then we'll see where Abraham 
prophetically uh, speaks of Jesus to come. So will somebody read to me through uh, verse 8, just uh, Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 8. Somebody grab a mic and read that. Matt's got it? All right. Thank you, Matt. And it came to pass that after these things that God did test Abraham. And said unto him, Abraham, he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which will I tell you. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up, and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. Abraham said to his young man, Stay here, you with the donkey. I and the lad will go, uh, go yonder and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand, and a knife, and they both went with them together. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Okay. So there you have the story. We know it well, right? God promises Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation, which means that Abraham has to have offspring. And that's a struggle. And then he has Isaac. But then God asks, tells Abraham to take Isaac and to sacrifice him. And it's a test for Abraham, as we, as we heard. And uh, Abraham probably didn't understand it. There were lots of gods that people were sacrificed, would sacrifice their children to gods. I mean, that was part of what, uh, that was a part of, a regular part of religious practice for many religions in that day. And so to Abraham, maybe he was a little shocked or surprised, uh, but, you know, Abraham just kind of, I guess, figured, well, I guess, you know, I'm just learning about this God. I guess he's not, maybe he is kind of like the other gods. Um, of course, we know by the end of the story that, that God is totally different. And, but, and actually, we know from Jeremiah that it would never enter the mind or heart of God that somebody would sacrifice their children to Him. Because our God is one who, get, who gives, not one who takes. So, as Abraham is going up, in verse 8, Isaac asks, you know, in verse 7, what... Where's where's the, the sacrifice, right? Isaac's just kind of wondering what's going on. And so, Abraham speaks prophetically in verse 8. Now, does Abraham know that he was speaking prophetically about Jesus? Probably not. And that's one of the things that um, uh, we learned from Pastor Rick as he has been doing the prophetic series is that a lot of times somebody who's operating under the prophetic has no idea that what they said was actually prophetic. Because one of the base principles of prophetic is that it doesn't depend on our ability to understand what God is doing in order for it to be done, because then, uh, you know, God has to become 
subject to our our mental abilities, which is which means nothing would happen. Okay? So so Abraham simply says, God's going to provide the sacrifice. Well, that's a prophetic utterance that points towards Jesus. That's the way we understand it now, right? Because we understand Isaac to be a type of the person of Jesus who is God's only son. And remember, we're on John 3.16. God gave His only begotten son. So, so as... They're heading up, and and Abraham utters this prophetic statement. It is reverberated by John the Baptist in uh, John one twenty nine. So let's look at that real quick. Somebody, somebody, just flip over and grab John one twenty nine for me, and and read that. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." So that's the testimony of John the Baptist that's fulfilling the prophecy of Abraham to say that God will provide the Lamb. God will provide the Lamb. And God does provide the Lamb. And so John is testifying to that fact that Jesus is the Lamb that God will provide. So then the story continues. And then they came in verse 9. And we'll, we'll uh, finish this up quick here. I think I'm making my point. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Here am I. <laughs> you got something to say. Now's the time, right? And he said, Lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do you anything unto him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, took the ram, offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, which... You know, as as we know, Jehovah is a you know not really a biblical term, but but uh, Jehovah Jireh is one of the we've come to understand Jehovah Jireh as one of the names of God. Lord will provide. Most of the time, we we think that in terms of paying our bills, but actually here it's thought of in terms of God will provide the sacrifice. That's what Jehovah Jireh, if you want to use that term, actually means is that God's going to provide the sacrifice through Jesus to pay our sins. Of course, God does provide to pay our bills, hallelujah, but that's really kind of what that means. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. By the way, Mount Moriah is the same place where Solomon built the temple. Second Chronicles 3.1. And it's, you know, so let me read this real quick uh, to sort of bring home this idea of John 3.16 being under uh, the prophetic of Abraham. Uh, So just as Jesus would one day bear his own cross up that same hill, so Isaac bore the wood for the sacrifice on his shoulders. Just as Jesus willingly gave himself in obedience to the Father, so Isaac willingly submitted to his Father. 
We don't know how, how old Isaac was, but he was at least old enough to carry the wood. Probably he was strong enough to resist his elderly father if he had tried. But his willing submission shows his trust both in God and in his father. In Abraham's mind, Isaac was as good as dead for three days. It took him three days to make it there. Before he was raised from that altar, just as Jesus was actually in the tomb three days before he was raised. Just as Abraham carried the fire and knife, the implements of death, and would have plunged the knife into the heart of his own son, so there is a sense in which God the Father put his own son to death. Isaiah wrote of Christ that he was smitten by God and that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He would render himself as a guilt offering. John 3.16 makes it clear that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, just as Abraham loved Isaac and it pained him deeply to think of killing him. So the father loved the son but offered him up for us all. Okay. So there's plenty of other ways. I mean, there's so many teachings on John 3.16. But what we're trying to do is look at the person and ministry of Jesus as being under the prophetic covering of the Old Testament. And I see, I, I see Abraham speaking that line in verse 8 of Genesis 22, God will provide the sacrifice. And so that is the prophetic that's fulfilled here in 3.16 where God the Father says that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so John brings in that concept of faith because the sacrifice that God provides is the only means of salvation, is the only means of, attain, of attaining the everlasting life that is offered through God and through the new birth. And this is why Jesus was frustrated with Nicodemus. It's because if Nicodemus really understood the story of Abraham and Isaac, then the person and work of Jesus would be understood by Nicodemus. Because he would understand the prophetic work that Abraham was doing there, even though Abraham probably had no idea. He was simply being used by God in the mouthpiece. In faith, he spoke it forth. And so we see here that John is saying <clears throat> that it's only by faith that you will not perish and that you would have everlasting life. Faith in the only begotten Son. Why? Because the means of salvation, the plan of salvation and the means of salvation only originate from God the Father. So our own ideas of how to be saved, right? Our own ideas of working ourselves up to being approved by God, though God does require us to, you know, develop in our behavior, for sure, in obedience and submission to Him. But salvation is by faith, not by works. So it begins with faith. It begins by believing in Jesus the only begotten Son, the Lamb of the the Lamb that was slain. Amen. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So here we have verse seventeen, and it sort of gives some clarification, because um, the idea would be that some would think that God was that the purpose and plan and heart of God would be to destroy all sinners and eradicate the world of everybody who disagreed with God and who resisted God. But 
what we have here is is actually the Apostle John understanding the Old Testament as the mercy of God. Because too many people read the Old Testament and think of it as an anger God, but actually, if you if you read it correctly, it's the mercy of God waiting for the time to be fulfilled for Him to send His Son. And so John the Apostle is redeeming the idea that, that, that God is an angry God who is just waiting to just shower down you know, judgment on people when actually it's a merciful God who introduced the sacrificial system which was not meant to be debated upon you know, every, in the law, every single thing. It was, it was meant... To uh, to really buy us some time, honestly, <laughs> and to point to Jesus that 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 sin cannot be removed by animals, and so that's why we needed a perfect sacrifice of Jesus to remove us to remove our sin. And so it says there, but that the world through him might be saved, and that's really the heart of God at the core. And that's the purpose and plan. And so, you know, there's all kinds of passages we could go to to look at that. But one of the ones that I wanted to go to, thinking about just, you know, the prophets and, and trying to look at this in a prophetic light, is, is one of our favorite ones, which is Jeremiah 31. You know, which, which really shows the heart of God. After all that... I mean, Jeremiah, if you read the book of Jeremiah, that man, I mean, he had to really go through some difficult things to follow his call. And I mean, it was a tough call, and these people hated him, and they didn't want to hear anything he had to say. But in the midst of all that hate towards God's prophet, you know, when Jeremiah got this message for uh, that's in chapter recorded in chapter 31. If I was Jeremiah, I might have said, "God, you know, you could find somebody else to give that message of hope to these people because I don't like them, and I'm not going. I'm not going to say that to these people because they didn't want to have anything to do with me, and they put me in a pit, you know, for however many I can't remember how long it was, and they, you know, they were mean to me and they put me down, and now you want me." to tell them that you are going to hang on with them and be a good God and you're going to establish a new covenant someday from now. Sorry, God. Well, thankfully, Jeremiah found it in his heart to put Jeremiah 31 down. He pinned it. So, Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, says the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
And so we find this is one of the most famous ones, but there's other ones where God says, my desire is not to remember your sins, but my desire is to forgive you of your sins. And so that is, that is the heart that is in the Son as He comes into the world, that the world through Him might be saved. So he who believes on Him is not condemned. But he, he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so there we have again the concept of faith where John is driving home this point saying it's only by faith. You have to believe in the Son. And as we learned last week, that was Jesus' real bone with Nicodemus. Is that he wouldn't believe. And he wouldn't believe because he, he couldn't intellectually understand. Okay, but that's what we find the common theme here in chapter 3 is faith. You have to simply believe. And you won't be able to understand it intellectually. We talked a lot about that and I won't, I won't cover that. I'm trying to see if I can get through this part here because I want to do the light part real quick. And we'll talk about that um, from Isaiah chapter 9 as well. And this is the condemnation. In other words, <clears throat> this is what has already been presented. That light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he who does truth comes to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 9 again about this light thing. Okay? So this is Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. Okay? So this is a prophecy about Jesus as the light. Isaiah 9 2. Who wants to read that? Isaiah 9 2. The people who walked in darkness, darkness have seen a great light. They who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has the light shined. Okay. So Matthew also, he quotes this in Matthew chapter 4. So, so there is a common understanding that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9-2 as this light that suddenly comes upon a people walking in darkness. Let's look at four Matthew four, sixteen, or let's start with verse fifteen. I'm sorry, verse fourteen, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, "The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region in shadow of death, light is sprung up." From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, Matthew, as well as John, has this understanding that Jesus is this light that was prophesied in Isaiah 9-2. And that you have to identify yourself as someone who has been in a place of darkness. And that's the most difficult part for so many people is you have to confess yourself as someone who has previously been in a place of darkness 
and you need light. Go ahead, man. You had a word? I was going to say, I, I think it's so important what you're saying because, um, you know, this Old Testament thing that you're saying because to understand that you need Jesus, you got to understand that you can't, you know, this new covenant, you can't, you got to understand you can't keep the old covenant. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's this true. whole thing that you're saying about the new covenant with Israel, it's like, you know, you have to have been through this, like, trying to get there yourself yeah. in order to understand how important it is that Jesus actually showed up. Because if you don't, if you think you got it yourself, it's like, oh, okay, well, I could just do what he did. But we obviously can't, and you have to know yeah. that, I feel like, in order to really appreciate the cross. You do. So let's bring this to a personal level. What, is, what are the things that have caused us to be in darkness? Unforgiveness towards others. Hate towards people who have been mean to us and who didn't care for us, those who should have loved us and harmed us and abused us. And you, you find people like that and you say to them, don't you want to let go of that forgiveness? They say, no. They do not want to let go of that darkness. As it says here, Um, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so they want to stay with the darkness of their unforgiveness and hatred towards others. What else? Well, uh, you know, you meet people who are in darkness in their minds and in their emotions because they've been rejected in this world. Right? They have a sense of rejection, unworthiness. And then actually what happens is they begin to use sort of that, uh, that low self-esteem in a way that manipulates other people, and they find that it works. And you say, well, don't, don't you want to live a different way? Don't you want to uh, live in a way where you, you're, you're not groveling over yourself all the time and living in self-pity? And they say, no, I, I found a way to make it work. It's okay. Oh, they love the darkness more than the light, so they stay there. They won't repent of their, of their, uh, you know, self pity and their. They believe the lie and they just want to stay there. They've found a way to make it work in this life, and so they don't want to change. And you know, I'm thinking of somebody right now. I won't say the name. Who, no matter how many times you tell them do this, do that, they will just do whatever they want to do, and then they come back and play the self pity card. Well, I'm not answering the emails anymore. Sorry. And then, and then you have people who, you know, <clears throat> decide that uh, they don't want to receive uh, salvation or they don't want to receive what the Word says uh, based on faith. They have their idea and their agenda about how the world should be, right? And how they're going to make it. And, and they've figured it out. And they sort of have this intellectual way of rationalizing life. And, and they don't want to submit to the way of God. What's that, buddy? And how God should be. That's a good way to put it. I have this idea of who God should be. And I'm going to reject any idea that would challenge my idea of who God is. Even if it's biblical. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, that unwillingness to repent of the thoughts that elevate themselves over the knowledge of God means that you stay in darkness. You don't have the light of life that sets you free from all of that. But see, Isaiah 9, 
2 says that a light will come. John tells us that Jesus is that light. And it's in the person of Jesus as we submit to Him and say, God, I don't know fully where all my darkness is, but I don't want darkness anymore. I want light. And as that simple prayer just starts the process, and God will take that and and really, really make a difference. Okay, thanks for listening this morning. We'll see you tomorrow morning at 9.